This morning we are wrapping up a four-part series I entitled The Rescue. And uh, by and large, I don't want you to feel like this was, uh, this was an exhaustive list of everything that God did to rescue humanity and all of creation. But I felt like it, it encapsulated four main events, if you would, uh, of where we could see God working specifically in these main events to perform this rescue of all humanity from the corruption, from the sin, from the disobedience, to rewrite, to write that relationship back with him that was lost so many generations ago whenever mankind, um, as in, in the form of Adam and Eve, decided to make themselves their own God. And when God stepped forth and he had applied the blood and the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ, he then again made himself once again God. And for each one of us that receives that, that, that holiness of God in, in proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ in our own life, we therefore set God as God as well and not ourselves. And the last of these events, again, um, not to try to, to um, pigeonhole these things down into four things, but the last event that, um, that I felt was a very important part of God's rescue plan was that at the time of Pentecost. Now, this is not normally the Sunday that would be, we'd be preaching about Pentecost. If you were looking at the calendar... Uh, as the way that all the, the, uh, the events lined out historically in the Bible and as, as well as Jewish history, uh, Pentecost would have come some 50 days after uh, Easter Sunday, after Resurrection Sunday. But in the likes of the Apostle John, I'm taking everything that was really important and shrinking it down into just a, a, a several Sundays so that we can ensure that we understand the big picture. You see, in this in this road to uh, excuse me in this this rescue, we we started out with the Passover, with Jesus uh, triumphantly riding into Jerusalem, with God using the Passover feast as a um, as a, a pinnacle point in which to start his um, his rescue plan, and then when uh, Resurrection Sunday came and Jesus was resurrected from the grave, we recognized that salvation was here was. Was perfect. Salvation was complete. Then last week we talked about the coronation of Jesus. So now that he had accomplished all that God had wanted him to accomplish and for all eternity he had to set him up above all things in this age and the next and, and crown him as king. So he could be king over the spiritual world. He could be king over the physical world. And today we're going to learn about the counselor. The counselor. You see, Jesus had promised that there would be a, a presence of himself with us always. And the way he promised this, we read about it in, in multiple places, but in Luke chapter 24, he tells his disciples, this is what, this is, what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and, the, and rise from the dead in the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. 
As for you, stay in the city until you are, until you are empowered from on high. Now, I, uh, I, I personally am the one that bolded this. You are witnesses of these things. Because I want that to be something that rests kind of gently on the back of our heart and our mind. As we're coming through and we're talking about the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. That he said... Before the Spirit came, before His presence would come, before this gift from God would come, He tells them, this is, what, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be witnesses of the things that you have experienced. You're going to be witnesses to my Lordship. You're going to be witnesses to my teaching. And then some, some days later, arose the event of Pentecost. Now, in the New Testament church, in our church, Pentecost has a certain meaning. It, we recognize that Pentecost was the day that the, um, that the Holy Spirit came and rested on the first disciples. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've become synonymous with making Pentecost as the giving of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost was, was before and, and was an event even before that time that we know about in the New Testament church. In fact, the word Pentecost was a, a term, a Greek term, for a, an Old Testament or a Hebrew festival uh, from ages of old that, were call, that was called the Feast of Weeks. So this term Pentecost, this event Pentecost, was something that the Jews had celebrated for generations upon generations. And this Feast of Weeks, the reason they call it the Feast of Weeks because it was... Um, 40, I'll well, say, it was seven, seven weeks, or se, uh, I'm trying to how this, how this it was seven weeks, so seven times seven, 49 days, it came after the first day, the first day of the month after Passover. Let me explain that. Remember that Jesus, remember that Jesus uh, he came into Jerusalem and, and was crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected around the Passover, correct? So the Passover feast would have ended on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, in between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. The very next day, and here's another way that God works in his, uh, in his sovereignty, the very next day, which we would celebrate as Resurrection Sunday, was celebrated as the Feast of the First Fruits. This was a Jewish feast. The Feast of the First Fruits. Now, the Feast of the First Fruits, I don't think it's very ironic that Jesus, becoming the first fruit of the grave, the first fruit of the resurrection, was raised on the Feast of the First Fruits. Fifty days after the Feast of the First Fruits is the Feast of Weeks. Penta, using that, uh, that, that, um, that syllable there in the front of the word, meaning five. So 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits was this Feast of Weeks. And what is celebrated on the Feast of Weeks, a.k.a. Pentecost, is the harvest. The harvest in full. You see, the Feast of the First Fruits was the day that they celebrated the very first things that they took from the field. Jesus' resurrection. The very, first, the very first resurrection from the grave. The very first coming alive of the dead body back into life. And then Pentecost, now 50 days later, to celebrate the fullness 
the fullness of the harvest. Do you see any similarities there? Because I think we'll get to the point where you realize that on this day of Pentecost, there were some 3,000 people who came to know Jesus Christ as Lord through Peter's sermon. The fullness of the harvest. I don't think there's any irony that God used these feasts to, uh, to time these events. So we, re- we read about this very first Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 18. So when this event, when this day of Pentecost came, it said they were all together, speaking of the disciples, in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now the Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven, when when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and was confused because each of them heard, uh, heard the disciples speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we can each hear them in our own native language? And then Luke goes on to list in Scripture the the places that the people were from, the individual languages that these people were hearing the proclamations of God, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in, each one of them in their own language. Native, native language. But they were so confused how in the world that we can, we can be hearing all of these multiple languages and understanding all of these multiple languages when the people who were speaking were all from one particular area. They were one particular region. They were from Galilee. There's no way that they would have known, they no way they could have studied to be able to communicate in these different languages. In fact, some of the people who were there said, you know what, I think they're all just drunk. Because, I don't know, I guess when you're drunk you can all of a sudden speak Spanish. (laughs) But Peter stood up, Peter stood up and he addressed these people. He addressed them in their confusion, he addressed them in their ignorance. And he said, with the eleven... And he raised his voice and he proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, and I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. Now this word prophesy is something that I think gets misunderstood. Prophesy basically means to to utter, to speak divine inspiration, to speak this divine inbred truth that comes out of somebody's spirit and out of their mouth. So they were prophesying something that was divinely given to them through through a holy God. Now, much has been done by a lot of theologians to try to take and pick apart this 
portion of Joel and try to go, well, what does this actually mean for, for the daughters and the sons and for young men to see visions and for old men to dream dreams? And they're trying to pick apart and figure out, well, does that mean that, that young men don't get to dream dreams and that old men don't see visions? Well, what Joel was trying to say and what Peter was trying to say was that there is no, um, there is no favoritism now. The Holy Spirit is poured out equally. You see, it used to be that only old and wise people were deemed to have the wisdom and the, the, uh, the, the, the divine Holy Spirit within them to be able to prophesy. But Peter is saying, and Joel was saying as well, no, in these days the Holy Spirit is given to all of those who make Jesus Christ their Lord. It was given to old men and young men alike. It was given to men and women alike. And then he goes even further and he says it was given to peasants. It was given to servants and the rich alike. You see, there was, there was no class system. There was no uh, differences between the sexes whenever it came to God's blessing and God's pouring out of his Holy Spirit. He said all those who make Jesus Christ their Lord are deemed to have the gift of this spirit offered to them. So if the resurrection was, was the seal of this promise that, G, that God had given us, the seal of the promise that we had been forgiven, the seal of the promise that God's kingdom was now, um, was now reigning, the seal of the promise that God was now restoring all of creation and he started with Jesus Christ, he started with the resurrection of him and therefore would flow out from him to all of his disciples, then the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we see about in this event, was the proof of that promise. It was the power and the presence of God that was given to God's people in order to go and to continue that restoration process. And if we go back to John, excuse me, Luke chapter 24, we recognize what it is that the Holy Spirit was there given for to be witnesses, to witness to the truth, to witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That salvation was here. And that restoration process the restoration process that Jesus began in his, in his resurrection through the giving of the Holy Spirit, I've seen that, it, that it, it, is, it encapsulates us in three different ways. And by all means, this is not exhaustive. But what I see first and foremost in Jesus' promise was that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God was going to be a counselor. Was, G, was the promised counselor that Jesus had offered his disciples. And when Jesus said to go and wait to his disciples, if we were to go back and do the math, we would recognize that Jesus had, had um, roamed that region and taught his disciples some 40 days after he was resurrected. And then he tells them to go and wait until the promised counselor arrives. Well, if he goes away in day 40... And then the counselor doesn't arrive until Pentecost, which is day 50. So there were 10 solid days of the disciples waiting in the city going, now what? What's next? How long are we going to wait? What exactly is this counselor going to look like? What's he going to do? Is it going to look like Jesus is going to be walking with us in the flesh? Is it going to be something else? They, didn't, they had no idea. They didn't know how long how they were going to have to wait. They didn't have any idea what it was going to look like. 
But Luke shares, us, shares with us that event that when it came, the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost, the sound, he doesn't mention an actual wind, but what he does mention is the sound of wind. He mentions this, this roar and the presence of God coming and filling the room and, and immersing every disciple that was there and enabling them, enabling them with the Holy Spirit to speak in other languages. It was counseling them to begin with on what it meant to be followers of Christ and what it meant to be empowered to do the work that Jesus Christ had commissioned them to do. In fact, you look really straight away at, at Peter's sermon and you start to recognize that even Peter had started to be counseled right from the start. You see, Peter, the same one who, had, who was a scaredy cat, who had run away from Jesus and had denied knowing him three times to save his own neck, stands up all of a sudden with all of this bravado and speaks out publicly and starts to proclaim what he knew and what he had experienced as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This was not the same man. And this was not the same man that was cowering away in the upper room waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a change, immediate change. You see, it was long ago, it wasn't just with Jesus that a counselor was promised to each one of us. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, some 600 to 700 years before Christ, prophesied. He said that I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel, that I'm going to put teaching within them and I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No, long, no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, you need to know the Lord. No, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's decoration for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Peter all of a sudden welled up with faith, with the confirmation, with the absolute um, affirmation of what he had experienced and what he believed. And he was able to take that and he was able to express that with love, but also with boldness and with clarity before some thousands of people that otherwise would have been looking to wring his neck because he was following this false, this false king, this false savior, so the other people thought. Jesus said to them while he was still with them, If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. You see, here's the spirit of truth. Equate that with Jesus' other words in Luke chapter 24. You will be witnesses to what? You'll be witnesses to what is true and good because Jesus is true and good. He will be the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. See, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor... The Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. You see, all of a sudden, through this counselor, where, where they used to have to have Jesus 
right beside them to turn and ask him, Lord, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Should we, should we call down fire from heaven to kill these people? Or should we have grace on them? Should we have mercy on them? Should we go this way or should we... And all this time that Jesus had been walking with them in the flesh, they'd had him right there to say, Jesus, what should we do in this situation? Jesus, are you going to return the power and the glory of Israel right now? Jesus, should we, you know, what, what, are, we, what do we, are we to expect today, tomorrow, in our future life? But now the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God in His Holy Spirit was there for them to turn to and for them to know beyond the shadow of a doubt what that truth was. To counsel them, to guide them. To do the things that Jesus was doing in the flesh for them while he was now absent from them in the flesh. To remind them, to direct them, to empower them, to convict them to repentance. To convince them of the things that they needed to do. To counsel them. And for each one of us, each one of us that also follow and have made Jesus Christ our Lord, we also have that counselor. And if we just listen to him, if we just give him the time of day, the space, the silence, the time for us to shut up and to just be in his presence and to feel and know the truth of God that comes through that counselor, I guarantee you the same way that he was directing then because God is eternal, he will direct now. He will counsel us. He will tell us what is true. We won't have to worry about what is right and what's wrong. We won't have to worry about trying to decide what's, what's true and what's false. What's factual and what's fake. We don't have to worry about that because we know that we have the Spirit of God, the counselor of truth in us. You see, that's because the Holy Spirit is the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit is the wisdom of God. In each and every one of his children. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians, Now that we have, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who comes from God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. See, there's a difference between human wisdom trying to justify things by the flesh and by our own minds and recognizing the wisdom of God. You see, that wisdom of God, it cannot be approached. It cannot be defeated. It can't even be battled with. The, 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 the disciple Stephen, we talked about him last week. The disciple Stephen, before he was stoned and while he was prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, about what God had done through Jesus Christ. It says this in Acts chapter 10, it says that full of grace and power, he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But this opposition arose against him from some of the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of Cyrenians and, and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Steve. They were having this debate but they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Is not knowing what to say scare us sometimes from 
standing up and witnessing about Jesus Christ in our life? I don't really know what I'd say. I don't really know how to explain it. Are they going to think I'm silly? Are they going to think I'm foolish? But just as in Stephen's case, it was the, the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of God that was able to, to, to share that witness. And it could not be stood, it, it could not be opposed. It couldn't be defeated. And it wasn't anything special that Stephen was doing other than listening to the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God and merely prophesying, allow that, those words to come from him. And through that power of the Spirit, through that wisdom of God, through the counsel that comes from the Holy Spirit, there really is only one purpose. There really is only one task, I guess, or one beneficiary of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit just as it was in Stephen's case, as it was in Peter's case, the Holy Spirit is there to be a witness of Jesus' lordship. And I put in parentheses by power and by miracles. And when I say power, it's the power of God's wisdom. It's the power of God's counsel. It's the power of, of prophesying, of being able to speak what we divinely know as truth through the Holy Spirit. But there are other things, and we can't deny those in the original event of Pentecost, that there were miraculous things that happened in that case that allowed for the witness of Jesus Christ to be shared to those that who, want, who would not have otherwise been able to hear and understand that message. See, the Holy Spirit is an agent of rescue. It's the power by which God uses in each one of us to continue what Jesus had told his disciples that they would do. You will be my witnesses. And again, I told us to make sure that we're remembering that. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Listen to what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians. Know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, no matter what, if we are empowered and, and, and uh, immersed in the Holy Spirit, there is one purpose, there is one task that we have, and that is to witness about the, the lordship and the kingship and the salvation of Jesus Christ. You cannot say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say, now there's different gifts, but the same Spirit. There's different ministries, but the same Lord. And, and they're all different, but the same God works in each person. And just as it was in that first Pentecost, there was something special that happened in that place. There was the Spirit of God that came and it filled every one of those disciples there with the ability to speak in another language. Now, as I've said before in the Ascension, we can become short-sighted and we can try to focus specifically on the event and pinpoint all the bits and pieces out and try to apply those, apply those specifics to our life. Or we can look at the overall, the overall 
work that God did by giving His Holy Spirit. What He did was He empowered them by, any mean, by the means possible that He needed to witness about Himself. And hence we get to this list of these different gifts of the Holy Spirit that, Paul's meant, that Paul mentions. And he says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. What is common among brothers and sisters in Christ? What is common in the world? The goodness of God. The Holy Spirit is the common thing. God is good. So the, the manifestations of the Spirit are given there not for you. They're not given there for me. They're given to us, the, 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 the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to us so that we can be witnesses for the only one who is good. And that is God. And if we read then the gifts of the Spirit in that context that we are used, that the, the Spirit is there to be witnesses to who God is, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we, it is there to glorify God and not man, and then all of a sudden we start looking at this list with a little bit different context. You see, one is given the message of wisdom through the Spirit. Can wisdom be important whenever it comes to witnessing about Jesus Christ as Lord? Absolutely. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. Can knowledge be important? Well, certainly it can. There are some people out there that will not be convinced about the goodness and the salvation of Jesus Christ without intellectual knowledge, without being able to have their questions answered. By another faith, by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. Now, does that mean that we, uh, we depend on someone being healed so that we can um, all of a sudden realize in, as a believer that God is who He says He is? No, because remember... Why does God do these things through the Holy Spirit? To witness for himself. So can God and will God heal in order to set his name above all? In order to make a, a testimony about himself and his son Jesus Christ? Absolutely. The scripture doesn't say otherwise. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. Is distinguishing between spirits a good thing whenever we're witnessing for the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. The Apostle John says in his letters that we don't need to, we don't need to, we need to be able to distinguish between the, those that are for Christ and those who are antichrists. Don't waste your time on those who are antichrists, who are going to be flagrantly opposed to the word of Jesus Christ. Move on from those folks. Discernment of spirits is important when it comes to witnessing. For the lordship of Jesus. There's different types of there's different types of tongues, and another to interpret the tongues. One and the same spirit is active in these and distributing to each as he wills. Now I'm gonna ask the question that I know is probably on a lot of your minds this morning, especially talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit the immersion of the Holy Spirit. And the question that usually comes up and has come up to me several times are, are miraculous gifts still alive today? And I'm going to answer that question with another question. Is there anything that God cannot 
and will not do to make himself and his son known. Is there anything that God cannot and will not do to make his son known? You see, the main point when we ask these questions is that we're not thinking about oftentimes the glorification of God. We're not thinking about being a witness to Jesus Christ. We're thinking about what we want to see. I'm thinking about, Lord, I just, I just want to see a miracle today. Lord, I, I want you to, to heal my son. Not because I want to see you glorified, because that's for me. Because I, I want my boy healed. I want, to, I want you to see, I want to see you um, do something miraculous. Because in my selfishness, I want to see it for me. But what we don't say is, Lord, if this brings glory to your name, if this makes your son Jesus Christ known, then that's what I pray for. And will the Spirit of God do as God pleases to make himself known? I don't believe there's anything. And I don't believe that this list is an exhaustive list. I believe that God will do anything to make himself and his son known. And the little snapshot that we have in Maryville, Tennessee, is only a minute portion of what happens on around the world in any given time. Do I believe that, that God can still use miraculous gifts in, the, in the, the most far remote regions of Siberia to where there hasn't been a person to walk in that area with the message of Jesus Christ? Do I not believe that God in some miraculous way can, can make those people know who his son is? Absolutely he can. He did it then, he's doing it now. Just because we haven't experienced it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I've never been on the moon, but I know, it's, I know it exists. The thing we have to recognize is that God is always central. God is always central. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given on his time. The disciples had to wait 10 long days. It's given in his portions. The scripture says that God gives gifts according to his riches and glory. For the purpose of glorifying himself. And how selfish and ignorant can we be if we feel like we have therefore re-centralized human beings or ourselves? on wanting to see and experience the work of the Holy Spirit whenever the whole purpose was that God is the one that needs to be glorified in the midst of showing the power of His Holy Spirit. You see, we come together sometimes as family of God and we, and we, we ask for a miracle. We ask for God's Spirit to, to show up today because I need to see that. I need to, to experience that. Well, you know, the problem is that you don't have faith. You don't have faith that those things are happening. And the fact is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if every person in this room is a follower of Jesus Christ, does, G does God need to have to prove himself to you? We don't need God to perform for us. What we need him to do is to continue to glorify and edify himself to be a witness for his son Jesus Christ. And in that way we, 
we know that the continued work of the resurrection, rescuing all of God's creation, will happen according to God's glory and God's time. Let's not make the mistake of feeling like that we that we are always the beneficiaries of everything that God does. See, God sent Jesus Christ, his son. God sent Jesus Christ, his son, with himself being the primary beneficiary to glorify himself. We were just collateral goods. We, we got to enjoy the blessings. See, we have to recenter God in our thoughts. We have to recenter God in our worship. We have to recenter God in our understanding of things like the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit and what it's there for, what his purpose is, what task he's trying to accomplish. And quit trying to be the ones to say that we want to be the beneficiaries of that. We want to be, we want to selfishly witness that because it because we need that confirmation. Know beyond the shadow of a doubt, just as he did in that first Pentecost, whatever it takes. And if it takes making people speak in another language so that the witness of Jesus Christ can be heard and understood and people be turned to him, then God will do it. And if it takes performing a miracle, if it takes healing someone, if it takes raising the dead to make his son known, he will do it. But it's not for you to determine. It's not for me to determine. It's for God to determine. On his time, in his place, with the portions of the spirit that are given by him, to glorify him. You know, another way, and, and the primary way, that we as a, as a church try to shift the centrality of Jesus Christ back to the center each and every way, each and every week is through communion, through receiving of the Lord's Supper. And that's why we do it every week. Because as selfish, ignorant human beings, what we really like to do is to put ourselves first and foremost above everything. We realize that's what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to make themselves God. And in certain ways throughout the week, we make ourselves God. But when we come together as a body of Christ, we have to, we have to recenter Jesus Christ as being our Lord. And not Jeff. And not you. And it shifts our perspective on why God does the things that he does. Not to help us, but to glorify his name. Now, if glorifying his name therefore causes us to be blessed, then hallelujah. We centralize our church, our worship on the Lordship of Jesus Christ by recognizing the, the pathway that he made possible for the Spirit, for the Spirit of God, for the presence of God to be available to each one of us. To counsel us. Because he wants 
you and he wants me to be more like his son. Not for you, but for him. He wants you and I to experience and to, and to emit the same wisdom of God. He wants us to make the same choices as Jesus Christ that honored the Father. Not for you and not for me, but for Him. Because that's what honors Him. That's what sets His values and precepts above all. He wants us to recognize that the gift that we have been given in the Holy Spirit was not given for us. For us to go around like, like that new Disney movie, Encanto, where all the kids have, have their own magical gifts and they're just there out there just doing, doing magical things for the sake of doing magical things. God says, no, I made my Holy Spirit available to you to do my work, to make my son known. Father, we are grateful to have your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you have seen fit to, to include us in your grace and your mercy. And Lord, that each one of us have, have agreed not only in, to be in your family, but to be conduits for your goodness, for your kingship, for your love and your mercy to all of creation. Lord, you've provided that opportunity, you've provided that way through your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Lord, he's made a, a super highway of God's righteousness to flow from heaven to earth through your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we all remain open to the work that your Spirit does through us for the goodness of you, for the lifting up of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the growing of your kingdom for you. Father, as we take this bread, as we take this cup, may we recognize that this goodness did not come without a cost. By paying that ultimate sacrifice, your son Jesus Christ has glorified your name. And Father, may we do the same. In Christ I pray, amen. Let's eat together.